Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast, where in this episode we celebrate 40 years of Ardman Animations. One and all, welcome to another Squiggly Animation podcast. I'm Ben Mitchell. I'm joined, of course, by Steve Henderson. Steve, how are you? I'm not too bad, Ben. How are you? Good, good, good. Just enjoying uh, the, the the recent sort of enthusiasm for uh, the anniversary of Admin Animations. Mm. The last forty days or so, Admin have been counting down to the actual day, which is uh, the Sunday past, and so we're kind of counting up. <laughs> from, from the anniversary if people have been watching the squiggly website we've been uh, celebrating it in our own squiggly way mm. it's a nice thing because of course it's the pride of bristol here you know next to uh, massive attack and banksy although from what i'm reading massive attack and banksy are the same thing yeah so we're going to need another third one <laughs> maybe miss millie's i don't know so yeah admin i think they're not going anywhere but 40 years going strong lovely stuff it's a good time to be a Brit in the animation world, I would say. It is, yeah. I mean, once upon a time, you might have looked at Ardman as not just the pride of Bristol, but, you know, the pride of the UK, and they still are. You know, their stuff has worldwide appeal. Uh, you know, you can't move for Wallace and Gromit and Shaun the Sheep uh, in places like, you know, Japan and, and Germany and all this kind of stuff. Um, but there are other UK companies and other UK companies creating some some wonderful stuff, especially in this kind of this era that we've kind of stepped into now, Ben, of of more mature approaches to animation. And uh, I think this is recently manifested in the uh, Ethel and Ernest trailer. Oh, I thought you were going to say Sausage Party. <laughs> Ethel and Ernest, of course, yes, has been. Uh, it's. I think actually it came up around at the perfect time because I think we needed something to balance out. Something that was actually, I do feel like the, that was a bit of a step backward. Yeah. But, uh, what they came up with on the other side of the pond. Uh, this is something that I think is really, you know, it's, it's clearly something that people are really itching for, you know. And I think that also because it's you know, Raymond Briggs and mm-hmm. animation, they've made fine bedfellows, that style of storytelling, and it certainly looks pretty spectacular. Yeah, I, I think if you look back at Raymond Briggs as a you know graphic artist, his, does, his stuff does translate incredibly well to animation, not just through the efforts of uh, you know TVC, who first did the Snowman, uh, then did uh, you know When the Wind Blows, and uh, all these all these other wonderful things that have been making people cry since 1982, basically. <laughs> um, I mean, were you a huge fan of the Snowman as a kid, Ben? Was it one of was it on your list? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure we talked about it at some length when they did the Snowman and the Snow Dog. Mm. But of course, it was. Yeah, it was absolutely a Christmas institution. Mm-hmm. Bowie in the attic, <laughs> the scarf. Um, I liked the you know I liked the ending. I thought the ending was one of those things that really was kind of haunting, especially with the music mm. coming in at the end with the credits. Uh, Raymond Briggs, he, he always goes back to. To death as kind of a, almost as a poetry in his work is uh, that it all ends um, and we see it through uh, the magic of the snowman we also see it through the kind of uh, the fantasy almost of this you know nuclear war we, we imagine it as a fantasy but I'm sure back then when there was more of a reality maybe of the possibility of a nuclear war and a nuclear holocaust that, that this thing didn't seem quite so fantastic 
but I think Ethel and Ernest is really grounded in reality, perfectly translated into animation by Lupus, who have uh, really taken the, the baton from uh, John Coates and TVC and created something absolutely marvellous here. And the trailer, um, you know, speaks volumes to it. Mm-hmm. Lewis, of course, did the Snow Dog film as well. Yeah, a couple of years back. Have you read the graphic novel? Oh yeah, when I was, I had a whole bunch of the Raymond Briggs books when I was a kid, mm-hmm. um, including some of the stuff that wasn't for kids. Wasn't what he did? It was a guy who just had this really shitty life. Unlucky Wally. Did you ever read that one? Uh, no, no, I didn't read. I that don't one. think. I don't think. The, I think that maybe someone had given them to like my dad, and I'd found them. Yeah. And I stole them. <laughs> I don't think they were really meant to be for me, but I remember sort of like, you know, sneakily kind of self-inheriting them. Mm. Uh, and they were just these books that Raymond Briggs wrote uh, about this guy who just like, the world just shits on him his entire life. <laughs> then the the follow-on was like him as an old man and the world is shitting on him even more. <laughs> horrible, horrible things just sort of constantly happening to him. And I kind of remember that the, the character Wally looked a bit like Wally from Where's Wally. Right, okay. I liked the idea that maybe, like, after his adventuring all around the world, Wally from the Where's Wally books just ended up living this really miserable life. (laughs) (laughs) Once the girl Wally had left him and his little Wally dog had died and... (laughs) (laughs) The wizard stopped caring. But that was was something that I remember juxtaposing against the other Raymond Briggs books I had, Mm. which were... Not, you know, about horrible things happening to people. They were about, you know, quite poignant things, you know, infused with pathos. And I remember enjoying that, you know, he had this darker streak to him. That was something I sort of mainly remember from uh, from Raymond Briggs as a kid. Mm. The film that, you know, is just coming out now, I think this is something that people will, will it'll stay with people, I think, in the same way, mm. you know, from what we've seen of it. It's uh, very encouraging. And great to see, as I said earlier, on British animation, kind of, you know, really kind of been at the forefront of this new mature feature animation, uh, you know, world we find ourselves in. We've got, you know, The Red Turtle, My Life's a Corgia, all these fantastic films coming out. It's going to be a strong year at the Oscars this year, uh, unless they fill it with, uh, you know, Minions films. And, like, films in production, like, there's there's a lot of stuff, like, happening at the moment in England. Mm. Not all of them with English sensibilities, but it is nice to know that, you know, it's a, it's a great time for animated feature production, if you're living in the UK at the moment, especially stop motion, of course. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's, uh, yeah. And then you have, uh, you know, what people have to put up with in the States. I read the review that Tanya did. I thought that was quite fair. Like, it was a great exercise in diplomacy. Yeah, she did handle that quite well, didn't she? <laughs> she didn't. <laughs> she, and, and, and she gave a, a kind of a, a wider view, really, of, uh, of the whole situation yeah. around... Uh, the film as well. So that's a good review if people want to go on Squiggly and read that one. I think what we're looking at here is with Sausage Party and then with films like Ethel and Ernest being released and The Red Turtle and, and stuff is that is levels of maturity. And me and you, I think we, we understand that you don't necessarily, to be mature, it doesn't have to involve sex and violence and swearing and things like that. That, that doesn't necessarily make a mature film. Think of Anomalisa from earlier in the year. I mean, that was something that dealt with adult themes very, very well. Like, on one hand, you do have animated sexual encounter, but that is part of this quite rich tapestry of emotion and the despair of a midlife crisis, for lack of a a better term. 
you know, this is a guy who's who's really sort of tortured and fragmenting off into a lot of destructive pieces, and he's taking people along with him. Mm-hmm. That's, in a way, a, adult as a theme can be the sophistication of human emotion beyond what you're going to be able to put across in a Disney princess in peril film. Yeah. Those tend to simplify things, understandably and forgivably so, because of course their target audience is very young people whose sense of the world and sense of psychology and all of that is just piecing itself together. So yeah, I do feel like if you're an adult and you go see a film, you are going to be left wanting a little bit more. And animation, I think, you know, it can step up to the plate. As that film proved, as Ethel and Ernest, I feel, proves as well. Again, it's not adult quote-unquote, really, by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a very grown-up film. I guess also, yeah, adult can mean not just discussing things that aren't suitable for children, but having the self-respect to not resort to that when it's not absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. And also, I kind of feel like it's all been done. Like, South Park did it so much better. South Park, by the way, for you kids listening, is that show that old people watch. (laughs) And I do feel like, certainly... It rode the whole, like, and it looks like a Pixar film, which it doesn't really, but to the average, you know, joke you, whatever on the street, it probably does. But, you know, but they're talking dirty, and there's, you know, oh, I know what that means. Oh, and that, that <laughs> bun has bosoms. Ooh. I, hate, I hate to say it as well, but the, the Simpsons actually did it. Do you remember the Simpsons uh, Pixar parody Nixar when they did a a parody film in the Simpsons Angry Dad episode where they went to the Oscars and met Nick Park and everything. It all ties together, this podcast. It's great. Uh, they actually did a a, uh, a spoof called Condiments. Mm-hmm. And all the jokes were in that 30 seconds. I remember, yeah, when the trailer for this film came out, I kind of felt like, okay, well, they've done all they need to do. Mm-hmm. This didn't need to be a feature film. The trailer, as a little isolated thing, could have been its own thing, like a college humor skit or something. I don't think you get anything more out of it. Yeah. Well, that seems to be the general consensus anyway, from people who have uh, taken the plunge. Any Sausage Party fans in the world, by all means, get in touch and uh, rebut <laughs> our, uh, our evaluation. I'd be, I'd be keen to debate it. I'd like to hear from them too. Let's let's spin that positively. I guess that little thing was just to sort of hammer home how optimistic and happy we are about uh, the flip side of that particular scenario mm-hmm. and uh, what people have to look forward to. Ethel and Ernest, Red Turtle, uh, My Life as a Courgette is going to be out in the States. You know, knock wood, nothing, with nothing going wrong early next year. So yeah, there's cause for celebration as well. Yeah, let's just hope uh, My Life as a Courgette is a UK distributor as well. We still need one. I think that it will. I, I have a good feeling about that. Yeah. So keeping with the celebratory theme. Yes, it is Ardman Week here on Squiggly. And uh, it's been very nice to sort of traipse down memory lane. It has. Uh, it, for me, Ardman are the, the company that, that kind of started the animation obsession for me. I was about seven years old when I first saw A Grand Day Out, which is mainly perceived as perhaps the worst Wallace and Gromit short. But for me, it was absolutely captivating. Uh, a friend came around to the house with a with a video cassette, uh, which we, we watched. And then he said, oh, I don't want to watch this second film because it's boring. It's just talking. Uh, and that second film was War Story. And I was absolutely hooked. <laughs> for me, Ardman are the, the catalyst. So when it comes to, to celebrating Ardman, I'm all for it. I mean, I think for you, you're a lot more, uh, you're a lot older when you kind of got more into animation and decided that it was the path that you wanted to follow. And it was Bill Plimpton, wasn't it, for you, Ben? But you must have had memories of Ardman growing up. 
Uh, well, no, as a fan of anime, I mean, you, th- there's a different thing. I think that you and I probably, as fans of animation, it would have started at the same time, you know. As far as working in animation and, like, embracing animation as, like, a craft that I wanted to do myself, that was, like, yeah, Bill Plimpton later on. The enthusiasm for animation, which I think we both share, definitely came at around the same time. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, definitely post-80s, where cartoons were this sort of dismal affair, suddenly all of these interesting things were happening with animation in quite quick succession in those sort of first five years of the 90s uh, and late 80s, I suppose. Like, I remember Grand Day Out at the time, before The Wrong Trousers, it you know, didn't have anything else to kind of be measured against. Mm-hmm. And that was it was wonderful. It was sort of an event seeing that film. I, very sort of specific gags. And anything that would get a laugh out of my parents as well always kind of elevated it because I don't think they would have ever <laughs> whatever you know crap I would have had on you know when I was sort of younger I don't think they would have uh, been rolling around at the real Ghostbusters or Ninja <laughs> Turtles or whatever but yeah when stuff started happening like you know Simpsons and Wallace and Gromit and Ren and Stimpy that would actually get a laugh out of the grown-ups like oh wait something's different yeah something's yeah. definitely changed and, you know, and everyone, of course, went absolutely, you know, for um, the wrong trousers. Creature Comforts was huge. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, because of the um, uh, Heat Electric campaign, that became this more sort of ingrained part of uh, what Ardman were doing, because you'd see it all over the place. So, yeah, no, it, it definitely, you know, and also because of its very British sensibilities, mm-hmm. that was something that I think everyone appreciated. It's, re- it's really odd they kind of landed in 89-90 uh, when... Uh, you know, Nick Park's career blossomed, really. But uh, they've been kind of gearing up for years beforehand, uh, you know, because I think British animation, as it, as it kind of stands today, and, uh, you know, it, it really made its appearance on the world stage in the early 80s. I mean, we talked about The Snowman earlier on. The Snowman was a great catalyst of that, down to Channel 4. And Channel 4 beginning uh, to invest... Uh, in television and, and, and to invest in, in animation for television. And you get the lip sync series, uh, which just birthed an absolute, you know, a fantastic roster of animators uh, that are still working today, that, are, that have had fantastic careers that, are, are, you know, we revere. It's interesting the, the point that, that your, your friend made that War Story was like one of the boring ones. I do remember sort of feeling that about some of the ones that had no, like, levity to them. I don't think they were for the younger audiences. I thought War Story was always great, Mm -hmm. because it was funny. Maybe going equipped, I didn't quite relate to that one when I was six. (laughs) (laughs) Gonna go out on a limb there. But yeah, you watch that, of course, as an adult, and it's it's, it's really quite... Especially considering where Arben were at the time. That was pretty pretty special. And following up Peter Lord's kind of aesthetic as well, you look at something like Going Equipped... Uh, and it's it's very gritty and realistic, and there's a wonderful part where the uh, where the cars go past and the light shines across the room, mm. and for that to have been done in camera, it's quite an achievement. Definitely wonderful character animation as well. Well, they did the uh, the lip sync anniversary thing a year and a half ago or so, mm-hmm. and that was a great sort of excuse, sort of like as an anniversary within Ardman's history, to kind of revisit that stuff. I do think that that was kind of a turning point. You know, and for a lot of people, I think that went on to have, you know, careers elsewhere. I mean, Barry Purvis, of course, had an amazing contribution to lip sync. His was one of the ones without any lip sync. (laughs) 
Except at the very end, I guess. But it was like the bulk of it is completely like, you know, to music. There wasn't much in Ident either. No, not Ident either. Like, Ident was pretty abstract. To this day, I still have no idea what it was Chaz did. <laughs> Something pretty dirty, I'm guessing. <laughs> That was like that weird sort of moment in the film because every, it's been gibberish up to that point and then he's like, Chaz is. <laughs> What'd he do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why is Chaz such a f***ing player in this labyrinthine world? Of, <laughs> you know, and I love those. I mean, I love those, uh, that whole series that was the VHS that I had alongside the Wallace and Gromit ones was just like that collection of, I guess, the ones that had made a bit of a mark. That was one of the most rewound VHS tapes I had at the time. Yeah. I actually found that not that long ago visiting the uh, the old homestead, and uh, we bunged it on. That was quite fun to sort of watch them all in, like, VHS quality. And it had, like, Sledgehammer on it as well, which... Uh, oh, nice. Was, uh, yeah, it was a good, that was a good collection, I remember. It had uh, the uh, Nina Simone song. Oh, Baby Just Cares For yeah, Me. That's a good that one great. as well. They were, they were doing all this work as well, whilst, you know, we look at the Lip Sync series, but they were doing all, all this other work as well. For, you know, commercials and, and just, you know, gearing themselves up as a studio and just paying the bills and getting things done. And they'd been doing that since 1976, you know, doing titles and doing morph here and there. And But it was the lip sync series, wasn't it, that really kind of, you know, set that set fire to, you know, what Aardman is today and made them explode onto the scene. Well, I think they'd worked out a lot of the kinks in the previous batch, which was... Animated Conversations. That's the one, yeah. I think they basically, that was, if you compare the two, like, batches of films, Lip Sync really kind of took on the notion of going the extra mile Mm. and coming up with uh, this extra element of visual ingenuity. Uh, And I think everyone did that really well. Even with War Story, which is a fairly straightforward animated adaptation of this guy's anecdotes, there's a lot of fun they're having with it, and the transitions are great. You know, I'd love the sort of keeping in of like the the parts of the recording that you know would have otherwise been taken out, where he's going off course, um, and the interviewer starts cracking up and things like that. Mm-hmm. Really great, and then of course the other ones really take on this sort of out of left field way of thinking and visualizing and that sort of thing. There's some great, there's some great uh, visuals in uh, the the radio one. I think it's called Early Bird, the mm-hmm. one with the uh, the radio presenter, and it's. There's a kind of uh, Heath Robinson esque vibe to it, and this this guy getting out of bed, and it's before Wallace and Gromit. There's this guy being kind of you know these this machinery helping this guy get up out of bed, and it's just taken from the radio, this uh, I think Bristol radio or something, if I remember correctly. Uh, but yeah, the, the conversation pieces they were called, uh, you know, a good start, but uh, they really you know hit the ground running with uh, the lip sync series, certainly. So we got to chat with uh, Peter Lord and Nick Park around the time of uh, the Lip Sync anniversary that was uh, held here in Bristol and figured, of course, with the Ardman 40th anniversary being this week, what better excuse to throw it in the podcast? We didn't at the time. I forget exactly why. I think it's because it was always sort of initially meant to be for an article and the recording conditions aren't as ideal as most of the interviews that we try and put in the podcast. But it's Nick Park and Peter Lord, so bask in their glory. So uh, let's uh, let's <laughs> reminisce with uh, Peter Lord and Nick Park. The curious thing about the, the lip sync films and the three that you two did, similar in a way to conversation pieces, although the, um, the conversation seemed more geared toward an eventual film, 
whereas uh, Barry's and Richard's don't really have dialogue in them at all. No. Was there any sort of particular reason for that, or was it... Because I, I was always ever sort of confused about Lip Sync as the name of this group of films, and why for yes. some reason two of them didn't really... It's funny that. I remember... Well, I think that was our initial idea, was... Because I remember uh, our album was fairly small, you know, mm. at this time, taking on new people and branching out into all sorts commercials etc and uh, as, you, as you know it's Richard yeah. Starzak and Barry Purvis and, and well, I remember we sat around thinking what should we hope be a great opportunity if we, we go to Channel 4 with an idea but we could never really agree on we came up with lip sync as a sort, like you say, sort of continuation of that idea yeah. but we never all really agreed on what no, we wanted to do but they kind of accepted it as an argument package for yeah. us you know, with these di different diverse ideas. Mm. I mean, um, Carly's idea was fairly. Yeah. yeah. There was lip sync in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know quite where his idea started, but he had that, that he had that comic vocal piece. Oh, chess, oh, chess, oh, chess, oh, chess, He had that vocal piece in his mind when he started, as the heart of it, I think. And I'm sure we yeah. tried to get Barry's to come on board. That's right. You know, it was like based on like getting a couple of stand-up comedians to mm. kind of ad lib. But there's a dog in it, which ends up being Rex the Runner, carrying on his own career after that. <laughs> 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 it is sort of interesting because they, they did have quite a big ripple effect. A lot of the films and, and creature comforts, of course, you know, so much kind of came from that. I guess sort of going back to sort of the, the original concept, I mean, what was the, the germ of that idea to take these people's testimonies and, and put it to zoo animals? Yeah, well, that, that was the main thing. It was really based on what Pete and Dave had already been doing. Mm -hmm. of, uh, going out and... Well, they would more have someone with a microphone among some people. Mm -hmm. I don't know how set up. Some of them were quite set up, weren't they? Some of them were quite set up. Like in the um, later edition, it was done at the offices of Bristol's version of Time Out, a listings magazine. And in that occasion, two of them had um, radio mics on, so in that sense, set up. Yeah. But the other ones, we tried to do one at a barbershop, it didn't work. We, just, we hit, the yeah. micro, hit the microphone yeah. here, <laughs> you know, just one mic, one mic to pick up everything that was said. And that. So we started with eavesdropping. Yes, mm -hmm. right. And then, Actually, found it was so difficult. Yes. He's dropped effectively. You know, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, no, it was. It was basically carrying on the same thing, same tradition, but this time with animals. That was the only real difference. Animals in the zoo. But uh, and the idea at first was actually was more to eavesdrop actually as well. Uh -huh. um, it's, and I I went round Bristol Zoo with a hidden microphone. But it's funny, yeah, the original idea was to try and record what people said about the animals, but reverse it so that the animals are saying it's about the people. You know, like, oh, look at that, look at that one, the strange looking thing there. <laughs> you know, what's he doing? And that, but it was never, the recording situation was never about that good or easy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and the, the zoo didn't really want me to record it there either. <laughs> 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 So, <laughs> and, and then um, it was afterwards I thought why not just go up to people 
because we did some box pops as a test mm. and uh, go up to people outside the zoo and ask them what they think mm. about the zoos and animals and in cages and stuff. And uh, it was good, but people said the same thing really. Nice to see the animals, pity they're locked up, you know. <laughs> so then it was like, how do we get more coming from the animals themselves and their own conditions? And so uh, I, in a an interviewer, went to people in their houses and like in small flats or in an old people's home or, or, and to foreign students and, you know, and people that we knew mm. to, that might give a kind of a, a view on what it's like being in the UK and things mm. like that. And that you could, things that were a bit parallel to animals being brought, you know, um, dissatisfied with their environment or whatever. And uh, I happened to find this, uh, someone I actually had met a few times um, called Marcio from Brazil mm. and he just loved ranting about how he hated living in Britain <laughs> <laughs> compared to the hot Brazilian weather and, uh, and he loved the opportunity for a good old rant <laughs> and he, he stole the show which yeah. was a great point oh, plus we it mixed that with different people with people who owned the corner shop that we, where we bought our pasties mm. and uh, family there Polar Bear family. Mm -hmm. Who's the Terrapin guy? He's a friend of mine actually. He's called Alan. He's, <laughs> he's, uh, and he lived in a very small flat. Yeah. I always did him as a kind of test, really, well, yeah, to yeah. see what would happen. And he ended up in the film. I but he just, he had a real bookworm. Yeah. Not much social life. I'm sure, I'm sure it's a lovely man, but he has got such a hilarious yeah. voice to me. Just yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's quite nice in here. Right? Sort of like an awesome like a Mike Lee caricature yeah. of the last person. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. I think that's it. It was the gulping, mm. the pronounced animated gulp yeah, going down right. the turtle neck that we, we loved so much. Yes. I think that may have been the, the ads as well. Yeah. Yes. That was a lovely little moment. That was the first time I'd done it was with that guy. Yeah. yeah. In a way, what I like and what Pete David done earlier is that it was so anti what you think about animation. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't whiz bang, exciting, fast, fast quipping, you know, uh, and big cartoony jokes. And it was like the minimal and uh, realistic, you know. Mm. And what, what happens if you point the camera at someone and let them chatter? What happens in the background mm. while that's going? You know, so hold the shot as long as you can. And make something happen yeah. in the background. Yeah. Yeah. For people who, who participated in it, did you sort of get wind of people seeing it? or? I, I, was, I remember being completely. Because uh, I've been working on the Grand Day Out for years, and, oh. and it was just. It was a gap in what. Well, between, before I mixed the sound, I've been mm. on it for a hard minute helped me you know to finish it for the last four years um, and I was just coming up to uh, um, the final stages when there was a gap in the post-production and when I when we were shooting the lips and I did creature comforts so I was completely gobsmacked really because it suddenly got all the attention of more than Grand Day Out mm. I was I spent seven years thinking what's this going to be like uh, oh, wow. uh, you know uh, and then suddenly uh, uh, and they both kind of got nominated mm. for everything so. uh, and 
and I suppose I suddenly came from nowhere with two films. Oh, so it, it's, it was quite a drop. It was suddenly dropped in it yeah. uh, for me. Quite overwhelming. So sort of competing with yourself is kind of a champagne problem, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, of course, Grande outlet to amazing things in its own right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so that was more, became a more of a slower burning thing, mm. really, the Creature Conference became. Because suddenly it started getting, you know, the commercials industry was really exciting here. And, mm -hmm. and they were really cutting on to new ideas in animation. I don't know if that's still the case anymore. All our talent, I guess, was in commercials, wasn't it, in Britain? You know. And uh, so suddenly, scripts from agencies started coming in. Mm. Uh, can we have an advert for this and that with animals talking? And, mm. and um, um, so, strangely enough, that all obviously um, they, they have to be written to advertise <coughs> the product, yeah. uh, and uh, that isn't what we did. <laughs> so we just recorded. So it was how to get people to mention products was difficult yeah. uh, without seeming contrived and written. So, uh, but that's when the electricity uh, ads came in from GGK agency, I think it was called. And, um, and they said, we want you to record it and do it, do the whole thing. If they happen to mention you know, electricity, that would be good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we did the same thing again with pandas. And, mm. very good point because in my head I, I like if I were to really think about it I'd be like oh, of course because they all end heat electric mm. but then like usually sort of like the first sort of thought is is the the gas ads mm. but, or, the, or just the heating ads but mm. yeah the actual yeah, people still say that yeah. love the gas yeah. and at that stage for the adverts he would still quite heavily involved I would assume like as far as making the actual animation and directing and things mm. yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah the great thing was it allowed us to just carry on what we were kind of, um, you know, enjoying doing, so, mm. which was lip sync <laughs> animation with found, you know, recorded voices of real people, mm. real characters. It translated very well to a, a show, certainly, but many years later, and was there a sort of particular reason there was such a, a long time between it sort of being brought together as oh, a show, like series, a series? For the yeah. series, yeah. That, that was a bit later on, wasn't it? Mm. Because that was more Richard, wasn't it? Yeah. At that point. Yeah. yeah. It was just a point, I know when we had downtime and, mm. and thinking we need to generate something to keep And then this idea kind of came up in the meeting. Well, it happened at the same time. It was, it was uh, um, how that creature comes to the series and mm. uh, how that show on the sheep scene mm. kind of around the same time. Mm. Yeah. And the uh, creature comes kind of got off first really, it's a mm. kind of easier thing to get going I suppose, it mm. didn't need writing as such, but just lots of uh, recording and editing, recording. getting the soundtracks <laughs> together, finding the, the, the public, you know, mm. make great voices, 
and, and Colleen and kind of defining seats. Is that how is that to see someone sort of take the reins in a way? Because it's obviously both very successful ventures, the both yeah. series Sean and Creature Comforts, and yes. Richard obviously is very plugged in mm -hmm. with with the admin spirit, I suppose. How does that sort of feel, like sort of seeing these things have such a life beyond the sort of initial ideas? It's great. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a, I think it's probably better at it, but I, I, I'm, I find it quite hard to let go of things that you've uh -huh. been very kind of involved with, with the creation that I've learned over the years. But someone like Golly, which is, mm. uh, you know, you really trust him. He's, he's got an incredible track record mm. and an incredible individual humour to quirky humour. Yeah. yeah. Your films, for let's think, mm. um, used essentially the same kind of initial idea of, of a kind of monologue, but the visual interpretations are quite different. Mm. Like the one, the for going equipped, quite sort of stoic and, and very much observational in terms of like subtle acting, mm. and then War Story sort of embraces more of the kind of animation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, so like which comes they are based on interviews mm -hmm. and that was just a learning thing because it was so hard to, mm -hmm. make, to make get to find material that was eavesdropped you know mm -hmm. you know on the conversation pieces series I we didn't have a big budget you know we were poor, we were, poor, we were that poor mm -hmm. and we made up I think we made 15 recordings mm -hmm. hoping to make five films and of those 15 two were, were satisfying and two more we kind of made a virtue of necessity and, and told stories that were not dynamic because uh, so like we, we tried to build stories around this rather undynamic material we had anyway so it was nice to break away and do interviews much easier much easier and and the funny thing about interviews as in both those films in War Story and, and uh, on probation. Nick's got, in Creature Comforts, you've got um, a microphone in, in the foreground, you know, but in those films, you don't, although the recordist does appear in the middle of War Story. But without a microphone, or without reminding people of the microphone, you kind of just, it seems like um, it's spoken from the heart. It just feels like a confession. You know, it feels like, it just sounds like as if someone sat down in a quiet room and they're speaking from the heart, even though in match they're being asked questions. But so, take out the interviewer, and that's how it sounds. And going equipped was interesting for me because I do remember being influenced by something, and that was Yuri um, Norstein's film *The Overcoat*, which he never, never finished. You know that one? I mean, Norstein's fantastic, brilliant, brilliant animator. And he started making this film called *The Overcoat*, based on a Google story, and. Um, He's never finished it. And probably never will, I suppose. Um, but but some of it is. He's got this funny old man who's a, a scriber or a, a writer. His job, I think. His job, I think, is, through, is to copy copyist. I think. That's. So he, he comes into the room, sits down, takes takes his coat off, and gets out his pen, gets out his ink, and sucks his pen, fiddles with a bit, and starts to write. Uh, it's very, very, very steadily paced and just observational. Uh, some with cut-out animation, but very beautiful cut-out animation. But it's just observational, you, you know, so you, you enjoy watching that. And, um, and that sort of influenced me a bit. And that actually, with going equipped, 
unusually, we decided, Dave and me, because we were working together on the script, we, did, we just thought, well, let's, let's not raise a smile at all. Because it's quite, it's easy to, it's, it's, it's hard to get a laugh in anything, but it's possible to raise a smile, you know, make, you know, have a, get a chuckle. Mm-hmm. And we thought, well, we won't, we won't even try. Well, in fact, we're, we're trying to avoid it. Because there were, there, were, you know, there were opportunities in there, but we didn't go there where the opportunities were. Just so, we, we, so, so we just thought, as an, ex- as an experiment, as a formal experiment, we just try making it so it doesn't make people laugh, it doesn't try to. So this would just be about empathising with the guy, with the guy, with the mm-hmm. thing. And the sound record, the recordist was an interviewer. We appro- what we did was we approached radio interviewers, saying, you know, in effect, "Hey, have you have you spoken to anyone recently that's that's got a good story to tell and is a good talker?" And so Derek contacted this guy he'd already met and recorded, mm-hmm. whose name I'm ashamed to say. I don't know who the the young the young offender was. I don't know his name even, which is terrible. Would that be in the credits? No, it's not in the credits. No, it's not. No, 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 no. I don't know what's happened to him, of course. No idea. No idea. And, and he gave long, a long interview, like it sounds, you know, low, sort of low energy, confessional, low energy sort of talking, you know, like just two people in the room together, chatting, <laughs> chatting with Derek, and Derek teased out the questions, and then, and then Dave and I, um, the, the classic thing you end up doing, which I guess you probably do the creature comforts too, is, is you take the, uh, you transcribe it, mm-hmm. cut it up, and, and just move the pieces around on the floor or on the wall, wherever, just trying to put the pieces in the right order so that mm-hmm. so there's a sense of a sense of shape. Because that's, yeah. that's what you always try to do is find the shape, aren't you? And then we chose to do those bits in, as the, anim- the character animation, and in between. We tried to do something again, atmospheric, you know, sort of faintly dreamlike scenes. And there's stuff like, which I really like actually, where, where the camera pans along and it's like the kid's his chest of drawers in his bedroom. And there's like a, there's a jar in it, a jam jar with wood lights inside. Mm-hmm. And the wood lights are because, the, because it's pixelated, effectively. So they're kind of buzzing around in a weird way. It's just a small thing, just there, and kind of, cre- kind of creepy, you know, atmospheric, creepy. Because when I was a child, I, I, <laughs> when I was little, I remember wood lights, like, you know, like, when you're small, they little, you know, like, I can catch them and put them in boxes and stuff, <laughs> training herds of wood lights and stuff. <laughs> so I kind of associated that with childhood, I think. And so the images were like, that boy talking, that young man talking, his name I can't remember, don't know, in his early 20s, and then images of his life when he was like seven or eight, because he, Life. He says at one stage, he says um, there's a lot of stuff going on in the, in the family. People who were well loved, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Well, the way he says it, the way he comes out with love, like he's trying to think of, of, of the, the strange word. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very strong thing he says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nice to do. And they're all because we, we built these live action sets, small sets, <laughs> bits of his cell, bits of his living room, bits of his bedroom. And shot these strange atmospheric little pieces there, and then we did another thing, which is the raindrops on his face. When he's when he's talking as a puppet, he's at a desk in an empty room, and there are car lights passing by outside, and there's rain reflected 
from the window onto his face, which was totally ripped off from Blade Runner yeah. at the time. We thought, oh, that's cool, let's all do that. <laughs> it ripped off from Blade Runner, but very much more difficult in stop motion because you had a, we had a separate projector with the, with the rain, which shot the rain, you know, we shot, we shot water running down the glass pane. Live action. Live action, yeah. And then we, and then we, and so we, that was on film. And then we wanted to project on his face while he was animated. So we had to do that frame by frame. Mm. And so when you try and project frame by frame in those early days, what happens is, is you burn the film every, every frame right. because it, it's too long. So there was some elaborate but hilariously primitive Heath Robinson system where you pressed a button and the, the projector would come to life, you know, and you take, you take the film frame and the project would die, would die down again. So it was only, the project was only lit up long enough for you to take your frame. I mean, there was also a, a funny thing of a, a terrible ramshackle device to represent a, a car driving by outside that, that you could have just sort of, you could just pan the light across the room like that, but that wasn't quite how car lights go. So we had a, a light, or two lights, two headlights, on a little tripod that was dragged along the floor, like it seemed like it was dragged 20, 30 feet along the floor on a chain, every frame. So, that, so when, you, when you press the button to take a frame, this thing would clatter along the floor, slowly, you know, frame, mm -hmm. frame by frame, at the same time as the projector was going. So it's like those things. It's fun. Yeah, everyone, everyone gets into that. You know, mm -hmm. like, that's it. And then, I can't remember the timing of this at all of how we, when we finished these films. I have no idea. Because it seems to me that maybe you'd finished Creature Comforts and I'd finished Grand Day Out. And uh, no, I'd finished <laughs> <laughs> Remember that? I'd go, go and get quit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've multitasking then. And um, it seems to me, in my memory, which is almost proverbially faulty, in my memory, I, I looked at it, oh, well, oh great, well done, Pete. Now you've made a film that nobody enjoys. With great effort, you've made a film that, 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 that you know, because it's it's difficult with a serious film. Yeah, the, exper the experience of a different film, the serious film, was completely different. You don't, you don't hear room people laughing, you know, you, and you, you know, and actually, I must say, nobody seemed to like it very much. There's one last one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, no, I've, I've, uh, I remember because I haven't seen them all for years. But mm. I remember showing them um, to some group who were all that's one they particularly like. Mm deals with the subject seriously and a lot of heart. I mean, I'm, I actually like it quite a lot, actually, I'm proud of it, but it, it seems strangely unloved. And so, therefore, Warsaw was almost subconsciously attempted to be more popular than the show. And, and the reason I mention it is because, in fact, with Warsaw, interestingly, I've got drawings somewhere of a whole other version of War Story, because in War Story, the guy the interviewee was found for us by a journalist called Pete Lawrence, who, who did the recording. And th that man talked, Bill Perry, I know his name, Bill Perry talked, told us his these stories, <laughs> spilled them out, he loved to talk. But I, I first got making another sort of semi-mournful film about his, his life. Not grim, but, but yeah, mournful, because there were other parts of the story, like he was bombed, or he was involved in the air raid at the BAC works at Filton. Mm -hmm. And clearly he was suffered some sort of 
you know, shell shock or whatever it's called, you know, whatever, you know, post-traumatic stress, as they now say. And so he, men- he mentions that, you know, and there, and there, were, there were parts of his life that weren't all jokes and so on. And so for that, with that two-hour recording, I could have made this sort, sort of um, thoughtful film, but that, I decided to make the, fun- the funnier version of it in the end. Mm. I mean, there's certainly pathos in it from, yeah. mm-hmm. like, those yeah. days. It's not completely sort of played for laughs, but the, it is definitely sort of bolder in the slapstick, I suppose, yes, and the yes. but know, wonderful it's, sequences. Yeah, there's, there's a big slapstick suit in there. Isn't there? Mm. It's like you're claiming Grand Air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got dirty credits on it, it's animated. That's true. <laughs> and I don't know why I got that, I but I had to go back three shots. I know. <laughs> so when, when the credits roll, yes, it was literally the first, the first dance. I've often been credited with it in things. Yeah. When I, didn't, I came on to help out in it. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. Um, yeah, but doesn't, yeah, you're, you're like, yeah. I don't, it says whatever it says, and the, the first sort of big credit is you as Adam. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did want to show it at a women's institute. Yeah. Where they booed. At <laughs> <laughs> the bit when they walked over his wife. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I have to go I was really thrown out. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Peter Lord there and Nick Park, the uh, the first Nick Park appearance on the podcast. Maybe we'll meet him again when Early Man comes out. We'll see. But yes, Peter Lord, of course, no stranger to the podcast. He's been on a couple of times, and I think we'll uh, be hearing from him again in this very episode. So. We will. It, it's easy to look at Nick Park and, and point to the Wallace and Gromit films and uh, Chicken Run and Shaun the Sheep and all these fantastic uh, creations that, that Aardman have have come up with over the years and that they're well known for. It's their bread and butter. It's, you know, and it's really good stuff. It's, you know, I, I love it. It's this characterful, wonderful world that they've created. Uh, but what I also love about Aardman is their their other output and the directors that really don't get the spotlight as much as they deserve. I mean, do you have a particular favourites of uh, of Aardman directors that may not have, uh, have have had the spotlight as as much shone on them as much as they should have been? Well, I mean, I think you could say that about everyone who isn't Nick Park. <laughs> I think because his face was so associated with Wallace and Gromit, yeah. and Wallace and Gromit was so associated with the success of Aardman. That just sort of happens, I think, with businesses and studios and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, people to this day still think Tim Burton directed The Nightmare Before Christmas. There's always going to be a little bit of misconception when it comes to how things are marketed, uh, if things look a certain way. So I guess ultimately, you know, a lot of the Aardman talent are people who perhaps, to the general public, wouldn't be sort of known by name. But I'm sure, like, if you, people would be able to say that they have films that they enjoy... Mm-hmm. And I don't think that Aardman's a particularly ego-driven group of people Yeah. Uh, when it comes to, like, absolutely needing the fame and the credit. I do think that these films wouldn't happen if the quality of the film wasn't put first and foremost. There's always an element of humility and an element of... Because you're never going to make the next wrong trousers. I'm sure that maybe some people kind of want to on some level. I think if you w- try and imitate the success of something it's always kind of doomed to be a bit of a... uh, It's just identifiable as what it is, like an attempt. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas I think the films that Peter Peake did, for example, they're very much his own. His style, it's his sort of, you know, quite specific humor. The visual style of something in Pythagoras, for example, 
There's it's Admini, certainly, but it's not like the the immediate thing you you picture when someone says Admin. You you're more likely to picture something that's kind of a, a hybrid of Peter Lord and Nick Park style. You probably look at Plasticine as well. Plasticine's the uh, the thing they'll always be associated with, mm. but they're not strictly a Plasticine company. But Peter Peak, obviously, yeah, I think he's he's great. We were rewatching uh, Pythagoras the other day. There's a lot of that's such a wonderfully timed. Lewis Cook, I've always, I mean, it's a little divisive, but I remember the Pierce Sisters was a great film as far as uh, subverting the expectations of what Ardman, what come out of Ardman, mm. uh, by doing something that was, you know, happy to be bold in that sort of thing, happy to be grim, happy to be sort of ugly in its, uh, in it. and it wasn't like ugly because it was actually quite striking the way it was all put together. The scenes in the rain and stuff like that. Yeah. The way that the CG was like rotoscoped in this very kind of grim textural style. I think that hadn't been done in that kind of way before at that time. Certainly not from from the Ardman camp, I don't think. I do remember watching that film and thinking, how did they do it? That's what was my immediate reaction to that. And obviously now we know how it's done. But back then it was it was absolutely unique. Certainly, yeah. I'd put him, you know, on that. I mean, I did, definitely the films that when I was a kid... I sort of fell in love with, uh, they'll probably have a certain special place. So Richard Starzak, Barry Purvis, pretty much the top of the, and Peter Lords, of course, uh, short film work. What was the one that, uh, uh, was, I didn't see it until I was a bit older because it wasn't on that video. What um, happened in it? Come on, test my knowledge, Ben. Uh, d- d- old lady, uh, not without my handbag, it's called. It's called Not Without My Handbag. You're welcome. <laughs> it's these little clues, and you just join the dots in this way that I gotta say. <laughs> that was a night. That was kind of a dark, but like dark and light. Like it was not really like a dark film. It was kind of like a goofy, fun film. Mm-hmm. And if I remember right, that was that was an Ardman film. It was. it was sort of around that time that they were really kind of firing on all cylinders. Boris Cosmail whose life's work I have not kept up to speed with. Yeah. Since Not Without My Handbag, um, I dare say. That that uh, found its way right on the back end of that Ardman DVD. Do you remember the Ardman Classics DVD? That, I think, was where I saw it for the first time. Well, it, it started off really kind of, you know, going for it with Creature Comforts and all the, the you know, the favourites. And then I remember watching it and thinking, well, it's it's kind of doing a, the, the sort of weird things that you didn't really want to watch again, like Babylon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in films like that, which are, you know, very um, testing for the audience that have picked up the DVD that see Creature Comforts on the front of it. And then right at the end, you get Not Without My Handbag, and it's just a wonderful kind of, you know, way to end uh, or, or, or to kind of, you know, satisfy, uh, you know, the ending of the the, the, the DVD. One of my favourites uh, was a, a guy that is responsible for, you know, the penguin in the the Wrong Trousers, and he co-directed the uh, Curse of the Weir Rabbit was uh, Stage Fright. I absolutely love Stage Fright. We talk about Arben there with regards to Lewis Cook's work is tackling a darker subject matter, but I think that, that kind of maybe started with Stage Fright. It always been within the spirit of Ardman, uh, and Stage Fright took, I think, took like a kind of what people were expecting from Arben, the Wallace and Gromitiness, and made a, a, a plasticine film which had a very mature odd story it wasn't about drinking tea and making wacky inventions and fixing problems it was about you know the spirit and 
it was you know very soulful film. I think it also kind of contributed the style of it certainly has sort of contributed to the overall Obman style of today in a way. Mm. Like when you kind of look back and you see the earlier films are kind of like early incarnations of various approaches to the current character design that they were using stuff like Shaun the Sheep and Pirates, etc. Certainly there was a, a quality of the, the character work in that. If I'm thinking of if I'm thinking of the right I'm pretty sure I am that kind of had an effect on like Shaun the Sheep. Yeah. You know, like they've shown the sheep and the. I'm just thinking now of like the characters in the movie, like when they go out into the city and that kind of thing, and the design work of the characters. Um, oh, they've not all got the Wallace and Gromit overbite, have they? No, there's a sort of more distinct look to them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that because I don't. Did this guy have anything to do with the Shaun the Sheep movie? No, but Steve Steve uh, Box actually had a lot to do with the the background characters in Curse of the Were Rabbit, which you'll notice are the same as the background characters in Shaun the Sheep. So there you go. Yeah. You have this kind of osmosis. Like, the very kind of tubular character designs. Mm-hmm. The guy with, like, the sort of, like, shock of hair and the kind of, you know, cylindrical-shaped head, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Certainly, again, like, other people who bring stuff to the table from the side of Ardman that uh, is not necessarily what people even know is Ardman, but they see it every day. Of course, all the commercial work they do. Advertising and that kind of thing. Uh, and I think that's given quite a lot of really amazing directors... A good excuse to sort of flex their muscles a bit, like David Sproxton did the presentation in Annecy, looking back at their advertising work and just how much you know. I mean, it's you don't necessarily associate advertising with creativity, but I suppose if you're Ardman, you're going to be granted a little bit more, I think, because that's why they're coming to you. But so. that's where the success comes from as well. And I've got a, a wonderful example. I'm going to send you now, Ben. Uh, I went home a couple of weeks ago uh, before my birthday and uh, there was an advert on the telly for a shopping outlet and I'm going to send you it now. So just uh, have a little watch of this. And I think this is the perfect example of people thinking that they're imitating Ardman's success but getting it absolutely wrong. So this isn't Ardman? Well, I think it's clear that it's not Ardman, Ben. <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's punch her up. It's great to come in summer as everything bargains as well you know you look at the price and you think uh, i mean we've bought anything from like you say from shoes to jeans to oh yeah i'm tight so i don't want to pay for parking so i'm gonna stop so i gotta stop it <laughs> there's only 10 seconds left but <laughs> i'm sorry to put you through that hell Ooh. should we just describe it what, what, what have i just sent you well it's an advert for what is it a shopping center yeah it's uh an advert for a shopping centre in Yorkshire. Let's not name it because it might be shameful of the... It's, uh... it's CG creature comforts, basically. So you see the microphone in the foreground and then in the, the focus of the shot is this animal talking set to uh, someone's not particularly witty or amusing remarks about uh, this service. <laughs> uh, some of the most hideous kind of like fur texturing... And rigging. I mean, it's probably very low budget, so maybe the people who put this together, you know. It reminds me a little bit of that film Food Fight. Yes. Which uh, <laughs> was probably the only, like, food-themed American CG film you'd want to watch less than Sausage Party. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure it's come up on here before, but it's, yeah, it's a trailer to look up, Food Fight. It had a bit of that quality to it, that sort of basic CG modeling. You know. I, I don't know whether or not it was the, the, the shopping center itself that turned around to the animation company and said we've got 50 quid mm-hmm. and we want we want Hardman uh quality work 
it's uh, it's a mess, isn't it? But I, I suppose that's what people maybe not understanding where the the quality of Aardman comes from. Oh yeah, and it's not within a gimmick. No, the element that they're they're capturing there is absolutely sort of missing the sort of soul of it. And also, like the creature comforts, is the element of what what works about those things is the the stuff that's going on around the character as well, the way that they've taken very specifically what the person is saying and applied it for that like shot mm-hmm. like a, a piece of dialogue that they've taken from an interview if you had a snail saying it on a rock would be meaningless but if you give it to an alligator on a log it can be very funny because of what's being said yeah like yeah. is all of a sudden like if you get like the brazilian student who's all pissed off about what shitty weather we have in England mm-hmm. in Creature Comforts, the original. There are plenty of the, of animals that you could have given that exact same dialogue to and it wouldn't have worked nearly as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's an element of consideration. Again, like going the extra mile and really kind of thinking about, you know, what how are we imitating this beyond a surface level? You know, I had the doomed experience of developing a show years ago. I've, I've mentioned this before, but it was a, it happens every once in a while. Like, oh, we want to do something like Family Guy. Now, whatever like little value one would give Family Guy, it isn't just a show about people yelling at the top of their lungs and being completely crass all of the time. It's a big part of it, certainly, but they at least come up with some vague structure to make it worth making an episode, right? There's a point, and the point isn't just to make a Family Guy episode. Whereas so many shows that kind of came out shortly after... Like Crash Canyon, I think, was that absolutely like defining example of just how they got it wrong, how they got the formula wrong. And that happens all the time when something hits big, as they talked about in the last episode of the podcast. You know, Red and Stimpy started off a, a glut of animations that would, you know, try and capture the same thing, and it didn't really land. As, you know, Ardman has as well, you know. You can tell the difference between, like, a, an animation advertising campaign that Pez has been involved in versus one where they've just ripped off his style. Yeah, because if he's had, even if he doesn't do it, but he'll consult on it, it'll it'll work. But when someone just nicks the the approach, it's always not quite there, you know. Well, you saw it with uh, Syriac recently and uh, McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. You're looking at it and you're not picking up on the right bit. Mm-hmm. You got to start at the core and then build around it. Don't just start with what's on the surface. Yeah. Or just don't rip off people at all. Maybe <laughs> maybe come up with your own fucking idea. <laughs> the other stuff, I mean, they do do stuff that, I mean, Arben do kind of do Creature Comforts-esque stuff that isn't Creature Comfort still to this day. I think that's something they'll always be kind of called upon to do. But I saw some stuff that was really quite nice recently. I'm not sure if it's sort of public yet, but it was like Creature Comforts done in a um, After Effects asset-based 2D style. But the same sort of fundamental approach. But again, what made it work was what the characters were doing. It was it was targeted toward the elderly. This campaign, mm. it was a scheme I think for for elderly people who were isolated and need communication with the outside world or something like that. There's old people talking about being lonely, which isn't necessarily the most comedy rich subject, but it was done in a way that was quite charming and sweet. Mm-hmm. That would be an example of a studio taking the same basic idea and doing it rather well, I thought. I've been like telling you, uh, one of the things David Sproxton showed, it was a thing with, um, for a mattress company. It was in the States. That was like a kind of after effects he shorn the sheep, except the sheep like talked, but it was the sheep kind of like stacking up on each other and, you know, doing a kind of 
slapstick heisty type thing in a very short form way, you know, for a 30 second block. So they can do like variations on ideas that they themselves establish and they can, I think, do that rather well. Yeah. In the way that, you know, all studios are kind of, I think, called upon to do, you know, they, they do something that they're known for. And so an advertiser company will come and say, hey, can you come up with a version of that that we can use to help sell our product? Well, Aardman have done it with uh, the Leonard Cheshire um, Disability uh, Centre. They did like a a creature comforts based on uh, disabled creatures. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? And did that incredibly well uh, to sort of highlight. uh, They called it creature discomforts. Oh, yeah. Uh, And that was at the time when uh, Creature Comfort series was coming out uh, uh, for for Leonard Cheshire. That was great uh, back in 2006, 2007, something like that. So, yeah, so they obviously looked at the the client's brief and thought, well, this is something we can lend our, uh, you know, style to because, you know, this particular style that we're well known for. Whereas the thing that we've just seen... uh, by a, a company I don't know who did it. I'm pretty sure it wasn't Ardman. <laughs> um, just kind of got it wrong. Yeah, it's a good, a good example though of how like Ardman has sort of bled into the consciousness of you know Joku public. Any other like directors that come to mind? I suppose one of my favourite directors, somebody who we've had a, a few uh, chats with on Squiggly, is Will Beecher. Mm-hmm. I really like his his work. I like Offbeat. Have you seen that one? Yeah, yeah. I really liked Offbeat. Really nice kind of. Uh, Traditional plasticine film, I suppose you could call it. I remember the first time I saw that one, I, it was at a, I don't think it was at Encounters, but it was at some animation thing at the watershed. And I was there with this guy who was like the boyfriend of one of the girls on my MA. He was basically going to be the next Jim Jarmusch in his head. And so he couldn't make it through a film that was vaguely clever without having something snarky to say. Hmm. And the reveal at the end of Offbeat which is a nice little reveal. It's a tiny, it's like, what, two minutes long, three minutes long? Three minutes, yeah. It doesn't need to be, the reveal doesn't need to be anything more than what it is. It's it's perfect for that kind of film. And uh, his sort of like response, his one word review of that was like, <sighs> obvious. <laughs> Just like, well, you know what you do better. <laughs> Needless to say, this young director in waiting has not, uh, the world has not yet seen his genius. Uh, but, but maybe it's, maybe time will tell. But yeah, I mean, of course, Will Beecher has kind of taken the reins a bit now at Ardman, hasn't he? You know, it's one of the, the, the staples of the feature world of Ardman, which Ardman have tackled uh, with tremendous success. Hmm. I mean, tremendous. I mean, they've been involved with companies that might not see their box office results as tremendous success, but the films themselves, you cannot deny they're tremendously successful films. Yeah, there's that whole, like, sort of, yeah, different definitions of what exactly success is. And I do think that there are very few films that you would look at and think, oh, that misfired completely. Mm-hmm. I mean, one or two, let's be realistic. But in general, they know their stuff. I mean, inevitably, some things aren't going to come together. I th- No, I think maybe one film, the film that you might be thinking about, that I might be thinking about, rather, is the film that I didn't have as much... Um admiration for as the others but the film was obviously tampered with by the the finances i'm talking about uh flushed away i think that film was hindered slightly by uh dreamworks maybe i feel that film got a bit of a bad rep like i don't think it was a horrible abomination of a film all can all tampering considered i thought it it held together all right yeah Yeah. you know the urban spirit does come through but I think that maybe it could have been a little bit maybe forced or something. I'm, I'm not... Um... 
Yeah, I think maybe it's it's the trying of that different approach to the animation. Uh, I I know definitely people weren't didn't fall in love with it in the way that it was pretty easy to get everyone to fall in love with Wallace and Gromit or anything that kind of looked like or like Chicken Run. I don't know anyone who doesn't like that film. Good, because if they don't, you don't you don't need them in your life. Yeah, yeah that's a good that's a good litmus test for who you can jettison out of your life. Yeah. Well, the one I didn't. I wasn't that crazy about it. it was called Al Zat from the of like the short films. It was kind of I think maybe it was around the time of Chicken Run. That's late nineties. No, Al Zat was um yeah, yeah, nineteen ninety seven. It was one of the uh their earliest computer shorts. Yeah. And I think that maybe that was the only real issue was just that it was the early dabblings in CG. Yeah. It wasn't a terrible premise or anything, it was just it maybe didn't quite um I think because Abman was so synonymous with like just hanging together so perfectly mm-hmm. to have something that was a bit shaky by comparison. Maybe it's sort of unfairly in my head in the shadow of the other ones. But I think maybe if you look back at that film, it looks like it might belong within uh, Pixar's earliest work. You know, when they were experimenting <sighs> 10 years before ours that was made. Yeah. Uh, but I think this film is, um, it's there at the beginning where people, where, you know, the software is becoming a little bit more accessible. This is only two years after uh, Toy Story came out. So companies were trying, were, were just beginning to get hold of the software and testing, you know, how to animate. There would be a lot more restrictions on the software to actually make animated films. Uh, the story itself is simple enough. What is it? A skeleton versus ghosts. That's a very good way of not animating legs. <laughs> Have a ghost. And I think that the short films were always kind of the way Arben could do new things visually that maybe, like you say, there's always a consideration from financiers and things like that, where the films themselves, the feature films, couldn't really veer too much, I think, outside of an established brand. Mm-hmm. They look great. But you know, I mean, I think probably recently the most like non-Arbany film would be uh, Arthur Christmas, which uh, which I maintain is a decent enough film. I I had quite a fond take on it when it came out. It was on TV not that long ago, and I having not seen it in a few years, I enjoyed it again. I watched it for the first time a couple of years ago. I am not a big fan of Christmas films. And it just looked to me like, uh, do I? You know, I I love Hardman. I, I don't really want to invest in this because it might not be any good. And I watched it and I absolutely loved it. I thought it was superb. Um, it, it, it filled me with a Christmas spirit I've not felt in years. It was like the moment in uh, in Ratatouille when Anton Ego eats the he's reduced to tears. It was that was that was what the film was like for me. Well, it was also it was quite a cynical film. Hmm. Which I, I I thought was good because that's the thing that Christmas films automatically kind of have against them is that they tend to be quite dreary. Yeah, uh, and the ones that really kind of hold up are the ones that are a little bit uh, have a bit of a harder edge. I mean, I think one of the most misrepresented films would be like It's a Wonderful Life, as far as like Christmas films go. If you watch that film like from beginning to end, it's actually pretty like grim. He has to get to a point where he's going to kill himself. Yeah. Like, life has to take a big dump on him. Yeah. But I think what most people think of when they think of that film is just that one scene when he's all happy and he's running through the street. Like, not that many people, I think, have actually seen the film. No, they don't think about his brother dying and, and all no. this kind of stuff. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, certainly Arbman, the Arbman Christmas film, it had enough of a kind of dry sense of humor to it. There are nice little sort of moments in the dialogue. Some of the goofy 
stuff and i like the character the, the little elf like she just has this psychotic obsession with rapping yeah. and sellotaping <laughs> stuff and yeah, it was fun it was a good film there's a nice chase at the end when she's rapping the the bike as, as they're going through yeah. the streets that's, that's a lovely moment so the short films i guess sort of were able to kind of go a little bit further as far as you know testing out new sort of approaches and things as lewis cook and peter peak and various others have done very effectively nigel davis as well i liked his film one film that people tend to be a little bit like hard on is fly i always quite like that yeah i think maybe because it's a bit like coyote roadrunnery so maybe people feel like it's sort of a bit retro in the, the humor but i i thought that was fine i don't see any problem with doing that kind of film that was a good shot at Fly. You know, it, yeah. it was it was you know just a nice formula film. You know, you didn't know it was coming next, and I love it when he opens the box and he just gets around it. And great, yeah, great timing. <laughs> Everything, yeah, yeah, sort of proper like Chuck Jonesy almost. Yeah, but maybe that was it. Maybe it was it felt a bit too American in the humor. I don't know. No, I, I really like. And then the end when you think all the gags have been spent, they've. They've not been spent, and you, you get that final laugh at the end. It's superb, absolutely superb film. So, yes, Admin fans, both of us, who'd have thought? <laughs> I'm pretty sure everyone of our, like, you know, more uh, devoted listenership feels the same way. I think you'd have to have a bit of a callus around your soul not to. Have you been enjoying the countdown they've been doing? Yeah, yeah, it's been good to look back, hasn't it? Um, it's a little bit odd, this, this 40th anniversary, because Admin was actually started in 1972. Uh, but they're, oh my god, they've done the math wrong. They've done all the math wrong. But uh they've uh, they've gone on the, the the time they was actually incorporated and made the first morph film. So their fiftieth anniversary might come a little bit sooner than <laughs> we think. Um you know, we give it six years, we'll be celebrating the fiftieth. Yeah, it's been it's been great. Uh, looking back at all the uh, you know the Ardman shorts and and you know, reminiscing and of, of course Ardman have been celebrated at uh, Encounters this year. They're also going to be celebrated at the Manchester Animation Festival. So, being celebrated everywhere. Who doesn't love Ardman, Ben? Idiots, that's who. Damn fools, a lot of them. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to go too far there. It's, it's all right. Sometimes my temper gets away from me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, let's catch up with the guys who started it all back on that kitchen table back in 1972. We've got an interview here with Peter Lord and David Sproxton. I've been talking to people, filmmakers, and the kind of first thing that they're asking is like, you know, how did Arben get to where they are? Mm. Uh, so I thought it might be nice to revisit those moments. Obviously, the moments, the way in which you guys opened a door in the 70s and 80s, there's mm. a different door now. Yeah. Yes. There's a security yes. guard yes. on the door and he checks you back. And, you know, it's, yes. it's completely different. Yeah, there's a lot more doors there than there yeah. used to be. Used to be yes, yeah, it's a whole yes. corridor. Yes. Yeah. Um, but first of all, um, it's forty years. Uh, mm-hmm. What what moment are we sell, are we are we marking the forty with? We're marking it with when Pete and I left college. We were both at different northern universities, and we had uh, a contract for a beauty show. Basically, what was Vision on, which was transmogging flying into Take Heart, happened to be recorded in Bristol. So we moved to Bristol in the summer of seventy six, and that's what was saying. Ding! That's sort of when it was no longer a hobby and a kind of bit of part-time work. It was right, we're going to see if this will work. And I think we probably said, let's try it for a year, let's see what happens, yeah. and we'll go back to whatever we're going to be doing. Because the funny thing is, control. when we went to university, we, looked, we were already animators, you know, we made films mm. as schoolboys, you know, and then as students. But um, it wasn't 
by any means clear how this would become a career. And so we, so we did. You know, it's not like we sort of said, right, okay, mm. now the Ottoman Empire is is, for, is formed. You know, let's just go for it. It wasn't like that. It was kind. Of, as Dave said, it was. Let's see. If, let's see if we can survive for a year. And the, I, think. I mean, outlets. So you know, BBC Kids, which actually was quite hard to get into. And Vision On was one of the few shows where, as a kind of high-level amateur thing, you could actually get something going. Otherwise, well, we have you know BBC, ITV. Channel Four, BBC Two, BBC Two wasn't commissioning stuff. Um, it was quite, it was, you know, the, and Monty Python, I suppose, as inspiration, Terry Gilliam stuff. Mm. Uh, getting stuff seen was quite hard, mm. so that, that's changed. And then Channel Four came along, and actually the world changed because they were commissioned. I started mm. commissioning animation for the kind of in the non-kids space. Um, that had quite a big, profound impact on what we got to make and, and what was seen. Yeah, uh, Channel Four being the the huge thing that came along. Oh yeah, yeah that was massive. Yeah. I mean, honestly, we were contemplating giving up about them because we we'd done more for the TV show than we'd done more of series, which we were very you know it was a big deal. Uh, Twenty six five minute episodes, um, great to get the gig, you know. And I think we had very high hopes. I think we had high hopes that we'd make a fortune with character merchandising, actually. But that didn't transpire at all. Mm. So instead, of, instead of which we finished the series, and it was, oh, great, now what do we do? And there, there was, you know, and we were back to scrap bits, bits and pieces, you know, which wasn't, which was mm. okay, but wasn't terribly exciting at all. Um, was it like a hand-to-mouth kind of existence at that yeah, point? Yeah, some title sequences, mm. you know, we had a good relationship with BBC Graphics at, in Bristol. Little bits and pieces. We did quite a few title sequences. Yeah, that's, 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 that's that thing. Little bits of morph that carried on and take heart, but just one minute segments. Yeah. Nothing that was sort of going to really be big and consistent. We hadn't at that point got into advertising, which was the, the thing that changed. So when Channel Four came up and they'd seen this you know, with the BBC Experimental Unit in Bristol, they made these um, things called animated conversations, which is pretty well what it says on the tin. You know, they were recorded from life. And we'd made two, they were done as experimental films, yeah. and Jeremy Isaac saw those two and said, uh, actually, he said, we'll have ten of those yeah. for our first week of transmission, which was about nine months away. Yeah. And I very quickly said, don't know about ten, okay, he said, five now and five later. That was the commission. Yeah. So we set to work on those, and they went out, in fact, we were late in delivery, weren't we? I think they went out on the first anniversary. Uh, is that right? And they stripped them, I think, at nine o'clock at night. So people in the ad industry saw them. They were played against the nine o'clock news. And then we did another series out of which came Creature Comforts and War Story and uh, Going Equipped and stuff. The funny thing is that we, we had, had the first film, the both for BBC, Down and Out, which in a way is the whole, in a way, so much of what we do now is kind of based on that mm. funny little edifice. But at the time, it was absolutely invisible, you know, put that mm. on BBC Two. And then yeah, yeah, just yeah. disappear without trace. Yeah. You know, I think we got a few kind words in the Bristol Evening Post, mm. and that was about it. You know, mm. uh, but fortunately, it, it kind of paid off when um, Channel Four started. And the other thing that that film did, the British Council would enter it for film festivals, and it got it actually into Zagreb in '78, mm. and that was the first film festival ever been to. So we went out to Zagreb, and suddenly you saw all this European animation, which we weren't really exposed to at all. We'd seen little bits on children's TV, you know, the Tales from Europe stuff, going way back, but you hadn't really seen, you hadn't seen actually Blind, there's a lot of people doing stuff out there. And that was quite a moment, wasn't yeah, it? Just it was seeing, oh my word, there's all these people doing this more 
uh, more adult work, more profound work, more art, you know, artistic work in many ways, yeah. and stop frame, all the techniques were there except CGI because hadn't, hadn't been invented. <laughs> um, and the work of people like Noah Yorstein, who's just um, you know, unbelievable kind of stuff. So we were, that's suddenly, whoa, where's all this, you know? And that was quite inspirational, actually. Um, and realized there are, we weren't getting the funding, but there was an audience and there is out there a community of people doing these sorts of films. And, and the Channel 4 films, not only our films, but most of the Channel 4 films did very, very well at the animation festivals in, over that 10 year period because mm -hmm. nobody else in the world was commissioning that sort of work. Mm -hmm. And it certainly helped us and it helped others. It, it does feel like um, Bob Godfrey, when he won great in, 19, in the early 70s, yeah. was a, a bit of a fluke yeah. uh, of, of a British kind of uh, mm -hmm. uprising. Mm -hmm. And it really happened when Channel 4 yeah. you know, put the pot on the boil and, and all yeah, of a sudden Britain sure. is creating animations. Yeah. Um, and by the end of the 80s, you guys find yourself with two in, in the same... Yeah, uh, that's right. Same <laughs> same that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And at the moment, it's quite sad because nobody commissioning that sort of animation in the UK at all now. And watching the short, you know, there's Arte, there's CNC, there's all the Canal Plus and other people. And you think, well, what's happening in the UK? You know, BFI aren't doing it, Creative England aren't doing it, Arts Council aren't doing it, none of the channels are doing it. And we're sort of on that decline now. It's a bit of a shame, actually, because mm. well, for a good few years, Britain led the way. It's a terrible shame to see mm. only one British uh, short film in competition this year. It's, yeah, it's, it's, right. it's staggering. Mm. It's staggering. Which yeah. one is it? It's a good one. It stems. It's, uh, it's the Henderson stems, um, which is a nice love letter to anima uh, stop motion animation. Yeah. Actually, so um, so if we, if, we, if we go back to uh, the kind of earlier um, Ardman uh, times, there's a fantastic uh, Christmas card of, of ba basically this. You guys sat on a couch, but with golly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christmas party. Yeah. Our, yeah. our local pub. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 What, what was what was Ardman at that point? Was it? We got it. Yeah, we would. Golly had joined just just as we were doing the first series of Channel Four films, and he was actually quite up the animation on uh, uh, Early Bird, which was set in a commercial radio station. Mm. And we just recorded the DJ and stuff, and it was sort of the DJ getting up in the morning. He joined us there. Uh, we had we had uh, there's a freelance model maker that helped us make models and props and sets, but there was and I think Sarah had joined us. Sarah Malik, producer, would probably joined us at that point. Well, not quite. No, she, no, she hadn't. No, she, she, she didn't get the couch. That's right. No, she didn't get the couch. That's right. No, she wasn't there. She wasn't there. She wasn't so in the pub. you know, Golly was our first employee straight out of college, straight out of Exeter, recommended by a colleague actually. Um, and then Nick came in. We met him at the film school round about that time. We went up and did a kind of master class for him. He'd asked us to, he'd seen Morph and said, can you come up? And that's where he, we saw what he was doing. That's interesting, his, his, his student film. Yeah. The fact that Channel 4 was around then, mm -hmm. we were making films for Channel 4, that we'd been to festivals. Obviously we were starting to feel like part of something. I think mm -hmm. that's true, you know. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we employed uh, Golly, Richard Starzak, um, suggests obviously that, we, that there was enough work to employ somebody else. So I think you would say just about that year, I think, that's 80, I think it says 83 on the yes, wall. Yes. So that's definitely sort of when things were yeah. significantly picking up then. And probably we just about started doing first TV commercial, probably yes, about then, which, which, yeah, which yeah. would prove to be, yeah. Yeah. that was a good thing for us, yeah. you know, because of these, um, we had this strand of, sort of apparently semi-documentary animation mm -hmm. thing is what, is what we were doing. And no one had seen that before at all. So, uh, including advertising agency, 
agencies have never seen that before. So suddenly we've got a lot of interest from them, um, which, as David mentioned earlier, we thought we th we, th we thought oh, this might last for you know six months or something. You we thought that, we thought that that advertising was totally fashion led, you know, and novelty led. So we thought, well, we'll, we'll enjoy this while we can, and that probably it'll, might last a, you know, a year at the best. But still going, still going, still going well. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned early bird there. Um, very Heath Robinson inspired before Wallace and Gromit even uh, yes. arrived at the studio. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and actually part of it was sort of how can you, in a way, take yeah. this out of those morning shows. Um, and, the, you know, the joy of that technique is you've just got the audio. And we cheated a bit with early bird because clearly we had all the, the DJ bit and then we just dropped in a ton of library music. Um, but we thought we have weather forecasts, we'll put in enough traffic stuff, you know, as you do. And then how can we make this fun and let's have him sort of in this dungeon that's having ironing his trousers and all that kind of sure, stuff. Sure, the funny thing is It's just a gag fest, really, yeah, isn't it? Well, yeah. See, what I remember about it, which is, seems to be absolutely incredible now, is I think that the design, Heath Robinson, yes, mm. but there, there was a kind of big, weird, wide shot, and there was some chains hanging. And I mm. think I think the guy was Chris Lyons we were working with. I think he was influenced by um, Alien, mm. which, sounds, which sounds like mm. what a weird thing to put that. <laughs> Which I think that was why it was all in, in grey and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. 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 yeah, how strange is that? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now I think that's really well, I told you it'd be a walk down memory lane. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, we, we go through to the 90s um, and you've had uh, Oscar success mm -hmm. and, and the studios uh, looking uh, really good. Advertisements are coming in. Um, is, was there ever a point where you guys were like, right, well, we, we are established? I don't know whether... Has it happened yet? <laughs> yeah. She must have. It, yeah, it has happened. Um, I think when... I remember... Uh, there was a point, and I'm trying to think, was it must have been to do with commercials. Well, in the 90s, when did we make wrong trousers? Um, I think when we found ourselves having a bit of a rapport with agencies they were coming back for more work that was good like the Lurpak campaign yeah. you know working with John Webster people like yeah. that yeah. We, working, we found ourselves working with some of the top guys Dave Trott John Webster big agencies and they were coming back with, I feel like we've sort of we got our foot in the door here there's a possibility there is going to be some continuity here yeah. and also you finally got money in the bank and you can buy some kit and you can hire in some people and then we'd move premises I think probably when we moved to Weatherwall Place was probably which was the mid eight. Five, wasn't it? Mm. We rented this place to spend a fair bit of money doing it up. It's just a big Victorian shed, basically, brick shed. And Clifton, we moved there and we thought this is it. And there, there was a, quite a long Channel 4 film, 15 minute Channel 4 film we were working on called Babylon. And we kind of moved there to shoot that and also knew we'd have more commercial work. And then from then on, we seemed to sort of double in size about every two years. And you know, from Weatherall Place, we had other studios, little spaces around Bristol, because we got them to do more commercial work. And it was probably at that point we thought, actually, this is working. We're going to carry on. Mm. And then, you know, Wrong Trousers got an Oscar, and then Close Shave. And then you, and I suppose by that time, maybe we had done the 10,000 hours. And I think it's interesting, because I think, you know, it takes a while for the industry, any industry, to take, who are these, who are these other stars? What are you? Well, they've managed to hang in there for five years, so they can't be that bad. You know, there's a credibility, and you, you kind of big then get recognised. Mm -hmm. And I think having having been consistently having a, being seen to put out consistent quality 
uh, is key to that, uh, rather than sort of being up and down. Is is there a, a, a key to success that you guys would would say? I mean, from an outsider's point of view, uh, I would say the difference between you guys at the kitchen table creating stuff and where you guys are now is there's a distinct line between the pair of you, David yourself focusing on the business side of business development, Peter being more involved creatively and in, and making sure that that output is still of the highest quality, but there's still a, a good synergy between you both. Yeah. Is is that a correct well, assumption? Would you say? We're a good partnership. Is, what yeah. is the truth of that? We just we just have. You know, very different skills and uh, very different skills, different mental processes, but but um, come together. Yeah, the, the, and and the essential philosophy is the same. That's mm. that's an interesting thing. I mean, and you know, it's almost embarrassing to talk about, it, but but like, but we're like we're not we've never been to make money, for example. But that is that's that's a small. I mean, we do, of course, but that's that simple sentence. I think almost personally, I think defines the whole thing because if. If you said, if if we had different instincts, if one or other of us had, you know, had been more keen to make a lot of money out of it, then I think the whole thing would have fallen apart. So although we we approach problems differently and have different solutions as well, that, that's okay. But that fundamental underlying thing, we're in it. Well, the polite way of putting it is we're, the company's creatively led. That is the most important thing. And I think we always said the film is the important thing, and I do think that's still true. Yeah, and there's complementary skills. I think any any great endeavour, I mean, the classic director-producer partnership, whether it's in film, theatre, or, or even music, you know, um, but having a, a shared vision. And over the years, we've got a lot of staff with fantastic skills, you know, right across the whole gamut, really. And that's kind of what you're looking for, is those complementary skills. And I've often said, you know, students say, oh, what, you know, how should I... You know what advice would you say? And I say, well, find people who are great at doing the stuff you're not great at doing. You know, use your skills to their max, but then bring in other people that can help you with the other stuff. Mm -hmm. Don't try and do it all yourself. And that's sort of, I think, probably why initially this got off the ground because I was much more into cameras and photography and process and production. We worked out ideas together. Pete's a better originator. I might be a better editor. You know, that, those sorts of things. So. Those complementary skills work out really well. Yeah, dovetails nicely. Yeah. yeah. How do you keep on top of it all? And now you do digital games, yeah. Yeah. Uh, features. Yeah. yeah. Just don't. That's easy. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Yeah. I mean, actually, I'm, I'm just joking, but it's kind of true. I mean, that, that I think that, that being prepared to let go is also very important. You know, say, well, these these guys are good. Mm. They know what they're doing. You know, get on with it. Yeah. yeah, we've got a great bunch of senior managers. Um, you know, guy who runs our rights and licensing, fantastic. He's a great entrepreneur. Mm. He's a, understands our, the Sean brand and all that kind of stuff. He gets the brand thing, whatever that means. Uh, he can drive that. You know, Heather running short mm. form stuff, and a bunch of very good producers. And actually, to be honest, <laughs> there's so much going through. Yeah. It's almost impossible to be over on top of yeah. everything. You have to kind of. I think the important, the important yeah. thing is I enjoy being surprised. Yeah. That's the yeah. thing. Yeah. Oh, really? Is that what we're doing? Gosh, fancy that. Whereas some people I say, what? Why, yeah. why didn't you tell me about that? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I've got, got well past that now. Mm. Yeah. So, sure. I mean, there's lots of productions, seriously. Well, let's take something very serious. Let's take Shaun the Sheep series, you know. Mm. Um, make a, they make a, a series of, what, 25 or 30 splendid seven-minute stories, and I'd barely be involved at all in that, you know, and just see him and give the, the occasional note, but so, but I'm happy that's fine, because it, because God was in charge, and he's 
he knows what he's doing, you know, and there's a great team, great animators. So that's, that's actually, a, that is a lovely feeling. It's mm. a fantastic feeling. Excellent. So back to hiring them people that are good at what they're doing. Yeah. That's, how, that's how it runs. Yeah. 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 It's all about the talent, isn't it? It's all about the people and the talent and having them. And actually, they, those guys wanting to work collaboratively and work, work together, coming up with good stuff. And finding the best people you can, that's really what it comes down to at the end of the day. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for speaking to Squiggly today. So thank you to David Sproxton and Peter Lord taking us back to uh, the beginnings of Arben there. And obviously we're looking forward to Early Man, which is out in a couple of years' time. Well, thank you everyone for joining us on another very retro Squiggly podcast. Presumably in the the next few episodes we're going to be going sort of back to the usual kind of formula of what's going on now. But I think this is something that was not to be ignored, you know, Arben is... uh, well, they were there with us from the very beginning of this podcast, really. That was our first guest, of course, was Peter Lord talking about pirates. We've had him in twice in this one, so I think that means that he's been in more squiggly podcasts than he has been producer of Ardman content. <laughs> yeah, he's like the, the most sort of frequent podcast guest. Maybe next to Bill Plimpton and, for some reason, my friend Jane, <laughs> <laughs> who just happens to find herself involved in a lot of very uh, cool projects. So, I think Jane's been on more than me. So thank you, of course, to Peter Lord and David Sproxton and Nick Park making his Squiggly podcast debut. And congratulations for 40 amazing years. Wonderful stuff. I guess uh, I guess we'll bid you adieu until the next episode, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Uh, anything to plug, to promote, to sell? Sell, sell, sell. Uh, yes, I've got a... Uh, maybe not for the animation aficionados out there, but if you know somebody who uh, wants to find out a little bit about the history of animation in the UK, I'll be running an eight-week course at home in Manchester, which starts on Wednesday the 5th of October. Uh, it's an evening, a two-hour evening class, um, and it's called uh, Animated Isles, the history of animation in the UK. And you can find out more about that on the home website, which is homemcr.org, and search for Animated Isles. That's Isles as in islands. Yeah, yeah, not as in shopping like Isles. Shopping. Yeah. <laughs> they probably would have been able to work that out. <laughs> Thanks for helping, Ben. So where's, uh, where's, where's, where's Cleman Throw this week? Glad you asked. Well, things are kicking off again uh, a week today. It's getting four screenings in competition at Ukraine's Linoleum International Contemporary Animation and Media Art Festival from the 15th through to the 17th. That's in competition too. There's info at linoleumfest.com. That same week, on the 16th, the next leg of the Short Film Nights Tour will kick off again in cities throughout Switzerland, this time in the French-speaking regions, for La Nuit de Courte Métrage. The first stop on the 16th will be Vevey at the Cinema Rex, and the screenings kick off at 8pm. For more info on the tour, visit nuitducourt.ch. Also, if you like animation, and I'm sure you do, that's why you listen to this podcast, this is not a cartoon. Squiggly's very own screening and selection of international animated short films is returning to home in Greater Manchester on the 18th of September at 3.30pm and to the Science Centre, Stoke-on-Trent, Staffordshire on the 30th of September at 6.30pm. So I hope to see you down there for some fantastic animated short films and you can find more information about what's being screened at thisisnotacartoon.com and I hope to see some of you down there. Don't forget you can order the first Squiggly book, Independent Animation, from all major book retailers as well as the publisher website crcpress.com. The release has been a little delayed, but I appreciate everyone's patience. I hope it will be worth the wait. 
And in the non-book squiggly world, of course, we've been celebrating Ardman all week. You can check out our hashtag Ardman Week series over on the site. And if you comb through our Twitter feed, we've been unearthing articles covering the wealth of projects the studio have been producing over the years. Also this week, we have an interview with Sean Shellers, whose Cartoon Network miniseries Long Live the Royals has been showing this week. Laura Beth gives an overview of the first animation Supergrill in Cardiff, set up by friend of Squiggly Gareth Kavanagh, and definitely an event to watch out for future editions of. There's also the aforementioned Sausage Party review, courtesy of Tanya Vincent. Plus, our first new podcast series is launched. You can check out Intimate Animation focusing on animation that deals with themes of love, relationships, and sex that we'll be bringing you over the next few weeks. And the response to that so far has been wonderful, so thanks so much everyone who checked it out, and we're looking forward to bringing you more. Of course, the regular podcast isn't going anywhere, and we will see you all soon. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ben L. Mitchell. Steve is at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. And Squiggly is at Squiggly. The website, as ever, is squiggly.com. Special thanks again to this episode's guests, Peter Lord, David Sproxton, and Nick Park, and for everyone at Arben for all of their assistance getting this episode put together, and for 40 years of amazing animation. And thank you all for joining us. Until next time, happy animating. <laughs>